Welcome to the Saxon Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lane Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. About five years ago, I received an email from an attorney asking about my availability to serve as an expert witness in a sex crime case. I had always been fascinated by the intersection of psychology and the law, so I decided to pursue this opportunity, and since then, I've done this several times. Working in this area raises a lot of really interesting questions. For example, why do people commit sex crimes in the first place? When someone sexually offends, how likely are they to do so again in the future? And how do you prevent sexual offenses before they happen? These are all vital questions to understand because sexual offending is common and the effects on victims are profound. So I have a two-part series for you aimed at giving you a better understanding of the psychology of sexual offending and what we can do to stop it. In today's episode, we're going to focus on the why question. Why do people commit sex crimes? We often hear that sexual assault isn't about sex at all. It's about power and control. But the answer is more complicated than that. So we're going to do a deep dive into the motivations behind sexual offenses. This will tee us up for the second episode, which is going to be all about treatment and prevention. Because if you want to stop sex crimes, you have to have a thorough understanding of what causes them in the first place. For today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Michael Seto, a registered clinical and forensic psychologist and a research director with the Royal Ottawa Healthcare Group. He is also a professor in psychiatry at the University of Ottawa. Michael has published extensively on the subject of sexual offending, which includes important books on sexual offending against children and on internet sexual offending. I can't recommend his books enough if you want to get more insight into these topics. This program will contain discussion of sexual crimes, but at a pretty general level. We're not going to get into graphic details of specific crimes or anything like that but I just wanted to mention that up front so that you know what you're in for. This is going to be an important and fascinating conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit kinseyinstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting sex science. Hi, Michael, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thank you very much uh, for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. So we're going to have a two-part conversation on sexual offending. The first part is going to be all about why people commit sexual offenses, and the second part will be on what we can do to stop or prevent them. But as a starting point, let me step back and ask a general question about the scope of the problem. So I have a whole chapter in my human sexuality textbook on sex crimes, and one of the things I've always struggled with in that chapter is putting a number on how common sexual violence is. Different studies point to drastically different numbers, in part because they're using different samples and they're asking the question in very different ways. Sometimes it's really broad, sometimes it's very narrow in terms of how it's defined. We know that 
a lot of sex crimes too also just never get reported. So it's this complicated literature. So with that said, what can you tell us about how common sexual offending is? Well, I think you've highlighted all the challenges in trying to arrive at a single number to estimate the prevalence of sexual crimes because it's different kinds of studies, different jurisdictions, different questions, and so on. What I'm comfortable saying is that even conservative estimates would say this is a really serious social problem. So one statistic uh, that you've probably seen is a suggestion that about one in six children have experienced some form of sexual exploitation or abuse, you know, ranging from somebody saying something really inappropriate and sexual or trying showing a child pornography to, you know, offenses involving physical contact to prolonged abuse over a period of years, like uh, that happens in sometimes in family or other contexts. In terms of sexual violence, uh, especially if we include situations where people are being coerced by being plied with alcohol or drugs or, you know, being really strongly pressured, again, right, we see pretty significant numbers as well for that kind of crime. Yeah, so it's one of those things where it's hard to put a precise number on it, but we do know that it is very common, which is why it's important to talk about why people commit sexual offenses and what we can do to stop them. Now, I read an article in the New York Times recently where an editor of a journal about psychology and violence was quoted as saying that they receive about 10 papers on victims of sexual violence for every one paper on perpetrators. And I was kind of surprised by that because, well, it's obviously important to study both victims and perpetrators. If you're not really studying the perpetrators, it becomes much harder to understand the motivations behind sexual offenses and prevention and treatment and so forth. So I'm curious for your take on this. Is it really the case that there's not a ton of research on perpetrators? And if so, why is that? Is it due to practical difficulties in conducting research on prison populations or something else? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think there's multiple factors at play here. Certainly, as an editor myself, I've seen that in terms of the representation of scholarship and also public attention. I think one of the challenges which you touched on is about access. So if we're interested in better understanding sexual victimization, there's such a wide variety of ways that we can recruit people to do research, right? We can do it at universities and colleges, which is where a lot of this research takes place. We can do anonymous online surveys. We can do interviews. There's lots of different approaches and different ways to come into contact with people. And unfortunately, you know, as a byproduct of that high rate of victimization that I mentioned earlier, there's lots of people who would be eligible for a study about victimization. Again, thinking about the classic college-based survey, you know, we know that a significant number of the people on campus will have experiences either early in their lives as children or once they reach college campuses where a lot of sexual assaults might take place. In contrast, if we're interested in perpetration, you know, typically we're looking at research done in clinical or, or correctional settings. And so, as you mentioned, it's more challenging to get access. There's not as many clinical settings. There's more permissions required. I've done it successfully, but it's, you know, can be difficult to get permission to get access to people in prisons uh, to study this. And then if we're interested in getting more general community perspective, it's really challenging because, you know, and this is actually something we're struggling with right now in terms of trying to do more, more research on the prevalence of perpetration is it's really challenging to ask these kinds of questions in a way where people are going to be willing to answer them because understandably they have this anxiety or fear that they might be somehow incriminating themselves and somehow 
what they say on a survey could be linked to their computer or could be linked to them in some way. And, you know, what might the consequences be of that? And so it, that really makes it more difficult to understand perpetration. Yeah. So it sounds like it's not for lack of interest, but rather there are some important practical considerations that make studying perpetration of sexual violence just more logistically challenging from a research standpoint. Something else I wanted to add is one of the challenges of studying perpetration is that, you know, one of the actual factors that make people at greater risk of perpetrating is that they don't necessarily see their behavior as sexual violence. And so they may not even identify themselves as somebody who could answer these kinds of questions or, or answer those questions, you know, in an affirmative way. So for example, you know, if you ask the question, have you ever forced someone to do something sexual that they didn't want to? Well, some of the people who probably should say yes, because they've actually done it, don't actually see themselves as having forced it. They just thought, well, you know, I was persuasive and I was, you know, kept coming on to them and, and so on. And they didn't necessarily see their behavior in the same way that the other person experienced it. Yeah, that's a really crucial point in all of this is the way that people label and understand their own behavior. Uh, you also see something in the literature on victimization where you have the researcher identified definition of victimization versus whether somebody says that they have been victimized themselves. And sometimes those things don't always line up. And, you know, so there is that component here of how people are labeling their own behavior, which I think adds further complexity to the whole literature on sexual offending and sexual victimization, just in terms of the researcher definition versus the way the person is describing their own behavior. Now, when it comes to understanding why people commit sexual offenses, the narrative you often hear in the popular media is that rape and other sexual crimes are not about sex. They're about power and control. And when I was in school, that's really the only thing I heard about this. However, as I've read more of the literature in this area, that seems to be an oversimplification. I mean, there's certainly some truth to this idea, but it seems to be more complicated than that. So before we get into the theory that you developed, let me just first ask for your take on this claim that many of us have probably heard before, which is that rape is not about sex, it's about power and control. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a controversy and a debate that's been around for quite a long time. And I'm the same, you know, I've seen these kinds of accounts and, and also the shifts in perspectives over time. My take on it is that I don't think they are opposing explanations, actually. You know, it's usually pitched, as you described it as, sexually motivated versus motivated by power control. And I don't think it's an either or. I think that these kinds of sexual crimes are sexual behavior. They are sexually motivated. And power and control can play a role in that in the sense that for some people, having that sense of power and control is sexually arousing. And so they're turned on by having, you know, this ability to hurt somebody, uh, to make somebody do something they didn't want to do. I think that's how these different perspectives can be reconciled. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I think that is an important point that it doesn't have to be an either or kind of thing. So you've developed this model that I think is fantastic called the motivation facilitation model, 
which can be used as a framework for understanding when and why people commit sexual offenses. And I really like this model because I'm very much a biopsychosocial theorist when it comes to sex. So in other words, there are the biological, the psychological, and the sociocultural and environmental factors that all play a role in any type of sexual behavior. And your model seamlessly incorporates all of those different elements. Now, before we dive into the specifics of the model, can you please give us the brief 360-degree overview of what this model looks like. So just zooming out, what is the motivation facilitation model? Yeah, so the motivation facilitation model is my attempt to synthesize a lot of different lines of research, looking at the kinds of factors and contexts in which sexual crimes take place, and also hoping to reflect on the diversity of sexual offending in terms of the types of behaviors that are involved. So you know, from a high level, what I tried to do was organize what we know about the factors that contribute to sexual offending and organizing them in terms of those factors that I see as motivating engaging in that behavior. Uh, so quite intuitively, I think for a lot of people in the public and also supported by the scientific research are connections between certain paraphilias or, you know, unusual sexual interests and their corresponding behaviors. So a lot of, but not all, sexual crimes against children is motivated by pedophilia, you know, sexual attraction to prepubescent children. We know that a lot of offenses involving exhibitionism is motivated by the person having exhibitionistic interests. Same thing with voyeurism. Not all, again, but a lot of sexual assaults can be explained by individuals who are sexually aroused by non-consent or by physical pain or suffering corresponding to sadism involving non-consent. That's on one side in terms of thinking about these different kinds of sexual motivations for engaging in sexual behavior that's against the law that harms other people. That's not enough, though. And I think this is maybe the more important contribution of my model is that, you know, I think people do intuitively understand that connection between sexual motivations and the likelihood of engaging that sexual behavior. The second side of the model is about what factors facilitate acting on those motivations. You know, just because somebody has sexual urges or thoughts or fantasies doesn't mean they actually do the behavior that's in those thoughts or fantasies. What else needs to be present? And so on the facilitation side, you know, things that the research has clearly demonstrated over and over again as being relevant includes things like personality traits. So people who are more impulsive or risk-taking are more likely to act. People who are more callous, you know, lacking in empathy and so less concerned about the impact of their behavior on others are more willing to do these things. We know that people who have certain attitudes and beliefs, so when it comes to sexual assault and rape, men who say hold certain misogynistic views about women, right? That it's a battle of sexes, that women, you know, are deceptive or uh, provocative, or that, you know, if you dress in a certain way, you're expecting something, all those kinds of quite antisocial, in my opinion, attitudes, beliefs, you know, can facilitate acting on uh, that desire to have that kind of, of control or power over women. Focusing on an area that I've spent a lot of time researching um, in terms of offending against children, we know that a lot of men who do commit sexual offenses against children have these ideas such as children can meaningfully consent to sexual activities or that they actually might even benefit from that attention and the interactions with an adult. And so you can see how those kinds of attitudes and beliefs can rationalize and justify acting on, on those impulses. And then last, 
you know, a really major one. And, you know, going back to earlier in our conversation, talking about sexual assault on campus, we know that alcohol and drug use is such a key factor. You know, it's, it's a situation where both perpetrators and victims, there's a really good chance that they're intoxicated. The last part of the model that I'll mention is, you know, recognizing that there's situational factors as, as well. You know, so even somebody who has those motivations to sexually offend and who is quite high in uh, these facilitation factors in terms of personality and attitudes and beliefs or substance use, that still occurs in certain contexts when there might be greater access to potential victims, they're under uh, you know emotional stress, and so they're like less able to regulate their sexual urges and thoughts or acting more impulsively, those kinds of factors as well. Thank you for describing that. So, you know, as listeners can hopefully see when we're talking about sexual offending, it's this complex confluence of a bunch of different things going on all at once. We've got the motivating factors that are interacting with the facilitating factors multiplied by the situation. It's a lot of different things all at once. And, you know, I think an important contribution of this is that historically people have often thought that fantasy is destiny when it comes to behavior, including deviant behavior, and that just having fantasized about something was a sign that you're likely to act on it. And I know thinking in the field of psychology has evolved a lot with respect to fantasies over the years. I mean, if you go back to the time of Sigmund Freud, Freud famously said that a happy person never fantasizes, only a dissatisfied one. And so in the past, in the field, there was often this negative view of fantasies. And there's been a lot of controversy and debate over the years about what role fantasy plays in sexual offending. And as a fantasy researcher myself, I've been really interested in that because what you see is that for some people who commit sexual offenses, there was a fantasy prior to that. For other people, there wasn't. And so that link between fantasy and behavior is actually pretty complex. So do you have any further sense of what the research says about the role of fantasy in sexual offending? Yeah, I mean, we've done some research on this as well. A uh, recent study of ours, we actually were really interested in the, what we call the concordance or the correspondence between, you know, having sexual thoughts or fantasies and the corresponding behavior. And there's definitely a correlation. So, you know, it's not surprising that people who have fantasies might be more likely to engage in, in a certain kind of behavior. But we found lots of cases where people had fantasies and had never acted on those fantasies. And we also sometimes found situations where people had engaged in behavior where they didn't, you know, ever report having those fantasies. You know, they were willing to try or they're in a situation where there was, you know, opportunity to act in a certain way. This brings me back to thinking about facilitation factors. Like, I think that really is key. And one of the things that I haven't mentioned is that sense when people have fantasies of that distinction between having a fantasy and whatever that might feel like and how they feel about themselves having those fantasies and then also how they feel about whether or not they act on it. Now, what I mean by that is... Somebody could have fantasies about engaging in something that's illegal and they recognize that there's a clear distinction between what's going on inside your head versus what you might do. And in their minds, there's a wall between those things. They would never act on their thoughts or fantasies, but it is sexually arousing. It is you know, gratifying to have those kinds of fantasies. So that's an important factor, right? That they have that clear sense of it's legally wrong or it's morally wrong or both. They recognize that it's, you know, illegal and immoral. Uh, or they have, you know, other reasons, you know, in terms of 
maybe jeopardizing their relationships or their situation in life, whatever the reasons might be, there's this clear wall for them between thoughts and behavior. Another personality trait that I didn't mention, but I should have mentioned, is that I think narcissism is, is another trait that's really important to think about, which is if somebody has fantasies about a behavior, part of their willingness to act on those fantasies is to what extent they prioritize themselves over other people. So I already talked about callousness or, you know, whether or not they have empathy for other people. But part of that, which is separate from just empathy, is how narcissistic the person is. And so somebody who's really high in narcissism says, you know, I'm the important person. What I want matters. And I don't care what happens to other people. They're more likely to act on those fantasies. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So this link between fantasy and behavior is very complex. And I think the key point there is that fantasy is not destiny. Just because someone has a fantasy about something doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to act on it. And someone might engage in a behavior that they've never fantasized about before as well. So yeah, there is a a correlation, but it's complex in terms of that association. Now, if we go back to the motivating factors for a moment, you mentioned how having a paraphilic interest is one of the things that might motivate people to engage in sexual offending. But some of the other things you talk about in your work include having a high sex drive and having very intense mating effort. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about those motives and sort of what role those play in sexual offenses. Sure. Yeah. I, I was talking mostly about paraphilias to begin with, but in the motivation facilitation model, I also talk about hypersexuality, which, you know, some people think of in terms of high sex drive, some people think of in terms of sexual compulsivity, even sexual addiction. There's different terms and, and concepts applied here. But what I'm really trying to focus on is somebody who is really preoccupied by sex. They spend a lot of time thinking about sex. They have a really experience a really high sex drive that's often expressed in, in high frequency behavior like masturbating a lot, looking at a lot of pornography, seeking out, you know, lots and lots of sexual, casual sexual partners. And that seems to play a role in particular in terms of sexual offenses against adults. So really most of the research, and this is, you know, a caveat, most of what we know about sexual offending is really driven by research on men, a large majority of whom are offending against either women or children. And so when we talk about hypersexuality, that seems to play a role in sexual offending against women, where some of the men seem to be really kind of distinguished by this this really high sex drive and sexual preoccupation. It sometimes explains some offenses against children as well, especially underage adolescents. The third motivation that I talk about is, you know, what in the sort of evolutionary social psychology literature is uh, sometimes referred to as high mating effort, which is separate from the, the high drive, high preoccupation is somebody who has a really impersonal approach to sexuality and is interested, you know, really invests a lot in having lots of sexual partners, uh, new sexual partners. And I think that can play a big role. In particular, I think the research is strongest, you know, based on work by Neil Malamuth and Mary Koss and others. That really plays a role in terms of college-based sexual assault, where, you know, you have this situation where Young men are super investing in trying to, you know, have lots of sexual experiences, are putting themselves in risky situations because they're intoxicated. The person that they're interested in is, you know, maybe intoxicated as well. And they're doing things that are not okay because they're not recognizing consent or lack of consent and sexually assaulting people. So 
Summing up your model, basically the idea is that we've got these motivating factors, which you've described a few different ones that have some sexual component to them. And going back to our earlier discussion, that could be coupled with interest in power and control if it's sexualized to some degree. You know, so that's one way of, of kind of bringing that into this model. And then you've got the facilitating factors, which I guess I kind of think of as kind of like the dual control model component of this, where you've got kind of the excitatory versus inhibitory factors that might kind of open the door or close the door to engaging in certain types of behavior. So it's that complex interaction between the person and the environment and in terms of determining when and why a sexual offense might occur. But I think it adds these important components that just because someone has a sexual interest in something, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to act on it. Now, a big question in the field of sexual offending is how to determine whether a person who has committed one sexual offense will do so again. So in general, what do we know about how common it is for offenders to reoffend? There's been a lot of attention, like you say, because of course there's a lot of interest in understanding the answer to this question of you know how dangerous is somebody if they've sexually offended, how likely are they to do it again? Most of what we know is from sort of clinical and correctional research. We know less about it in the general community, but broadly speaking, I think that research lines up with what we've been talking about in terms of motivating and facilitating factors. So evidence that the person has, you know, paraphilic interests like pedophilia or exhibitionism or voyeurism or, you know, non-consensual sexual sadism. That's a really robust risk factor. We see that emerge in study after study that people who clearly have evidence of that are more likely to sexually reoffend. Evidence that the person is sexually preoccupied is another well-established risk factor. So again, in terms of things like pornography use, pursuing uh, novel sexual partners, spending a lot of time fantasizing and masturbating, all those kinds of indicators. Uh, high sex drive indicators, and also in terms of you know mating effort, the extent of their sexual histories, in terms of you know really having a history of impersonal sexual relationships, you know not getting into longer term uh, relationships, not getting into committed relationships. Those are all risk factors. And then on the facilitation side, we know that how people score in terms of antisocial personality, and particularly uh, psychopathy, is a strong risk factor more general antisocial behavior and criminal behavior. So, you know, one of the things that stands out as a, as a risk factor for people who sexually offended is whether they've committed other kinds of crimes, whether that's theft or violence or drug offenses, etc. cetera. Uh, and then another area that we've mentioned is those attitudes and beliefs. So the more people endorse those kinds of misogynistic or inaccurate ideas about children and sexuality, the more likely they are to offend, and then, and then finally, substance use, uh, in particular, alcohol use, uh, seems to be a, a robust risk factor. So it seems like we can really use your model in a lot of ways to try and predict whether someone would be likely to reoffend because you need to take into account all those different motivating factors and all the different facilitating factors as well. And you know, I found your model to be of great value because I do a fair amount of work as an expert witness in sex crime cases. And the this motivation facilitation model has been particularly influential in my thinking in this particular area. Just out of curiosity, do you only do academic work or do you also get involved in any legal or forensic work? Nowadays, I'm full-time research, but for most of my career, I was a clinician scientist. So I was both 
doing research, but also involved in assessment and treatment of people who've sexually offended, uh, including testifying in court and doing evaluations for the court and that, that forensic work. As an aside, that's really where I see the genesis of my career and my contribution, I hope, in this area is that I, for most of my career, have been, you know, involved in all those different activities where I find it quite enriching. You know, I got a lot of my research ideas from questions that came up, you know, from the clinical work, from being asked questions in court, from being consulted by colleagues. And simultaneously, a lot of the research that I've invested in I hope has had real practical application. I'm definitely interested in more theoretical work too and more sort of foundational work, but a lot of what I've done has been pretty applied. I'm I'm interested in questions of what are the key factors to explain sexual offending? How do we assess risk uh, for whether somebody's going to offend again? What can we do to try and mitigate that risk to reduce the chances that they're going to harm someone? Yeah, these are all such important and crucial topics, and we really appreciate your contributions in this area. So thank you so much for sharing all of this information with us and giving us a better understanding of the psychology behind sexual offending. I'm looking forward to our next discussion on prevention and treatment. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and to get a copy of one of your books? I don't know how much longer I'm going to be on, but I'm still active on Twitter at MCCETO, M-C-S-E-T-O. Uh, I have a LinkedIn profile with the same user handle. Uh, I'm also on ResearchGate for people interested in, in my academic work. And in terms of the books I've written, I've written books about pedophilia and sexual offending against children, and then specifically uh, online sexual offending, and they're both available from the American Psychological Association. Well, thank you again for your time, and thank you for all of your important work in the field. Thanks a lot. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 